Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Scott Klusendorf on key points in making the pro-life case with those who are opposed to it. I don't know if you ever had a pebble in your shoe when you're out hiking. It wears on you and wears on you until you stop to deal with it. Same idea here. We give people something to think about. We place those nuggets of thought in their minds. And who knows, maybe a year later they're talking to somebody else and it, it comes about that God at that point brings the harvest. We need to get past this idea that if people don't agree on the spot with us, we've lost. No, your job is to faithfully convey truth and leave the results to God. Scott Klusendorf next. For decades, driven by his God-given passion for life, Scott Klusendorf has been engaged in what he calls pro-life apologetics, which is explaining and defending the pro-life position. He does this through talks, debates, his website, and books like The Case for Life, equipping Christians to engage the culture. Today, we'll find out about the ministry he founded, Life Training Institute, and why he does it. Scott, how did the Lord lead you to start this ministry? We got started in 2003. I'd been working in pro-life apologetics for about, oh, 11 years by then. And I'd worked for other ministries, Stand to Reason, Center for Bioethical Reform, the two that I worked with. And we started Life Training Institute for one reason. We wanted an organization that dealt exclusively with pro-life apologetics. There are groups out there that are doing abstinence talks, and they do great work. We love them. There's groups out there that do post-abortion testimonial-style presentations. We love them. We support these groups. But we saw a real need to equip students in particular how to make a case for the pro-life view so they could convince their friends that the pro-life view was true and reasonable to believe. And so that's what we do at LTI. We, we aren't a testimonial group. We don't talk about ourselves. We talk about the arguments in favor of the humanity of the unborn. Where did this passion for that, to, to make the case for the humanity of the unborn, what do you attribute that to, Where that the origin of that? I can tell you the exact moment it all got started. It was November of 1990, so we're going back 30, what, 33 years, something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, and I was at a pastor's breakfast. I was an associate pastor at a church in Southern California at the time. And the local pregnancy center director, Lois Cunningham, reached out to me and said, I want you to come to a breakfast we're having for pastors. You'll have a lot of your friends there. It'll be good food and a good speaker. And I went thinking there'll be 100 colleagues of mine there. There were four of us and their wives. And that was it. But thankfully, the speaker, Greg Cunningham, uh, laid out a case for the pro-life view, and I was impressed. I thought, this guy's sharp. He's a lawyer. He's a former legislator in Pennsylvania, where he'd been a member of the House of Representatives. He knew law. He knew logic, and I thought, I like this guy. But then he did something, Bill, that changed my life forever. He showed a short video clip depicting abortion. I had never seen abortion, and I sat there and wept and thought, I am no different than the priest and the Levite. I say I care about this, but I pass by on the other side of the road and I don't lift a finger to stop it. My feelings don't match my rhetoric. And that day I moved from being attitudinally pro-life to becoming behaviorally pro-life. And within six months, I had resigned my position as an associate pastor at the church with the blessing of the church to pursue how I could do full-time training in pro-life speaking and apologetics. And hence the Life Life Training Institute, you've devoted your life to this. 
and you have speakers. And c- can you talk about where you speak? Uh, I mean, I know it's not just sure. Christian groups, but it's it's a wide wide variety. In the summers, we are principally doing Christian worldview forms for students, places like Summit Ministries, uh, Forge Leadership, Alliance Defending Freedoms, Blackstone, and, and Erte Academy type events. And we're training the next generation of pro-life leaders and students. During the school year, we devote our time primarily and principally to reaching Catholic and Protestant high school students in school assemblies, and uh, sometimes university talks as well. It just depends on where we can get in. But most notably, we do this in high school settings, and it's very helpful because these students have not heard a pro-life argument. A lot of people think, oh, the pro-life message has been heard and rejected. No, it's not been heard. And that's why people don't accept it. Uh, some might wonder at this point, Scott, how do you define that phrase or that word, pro-life? Pro-life means you oppose the intentional killing of an innocent human being. And it flows right from the basic argument that we make. Premise one, it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Conclusion, therefore abortion is wrong. Now, what's great about that argument, Bill, there's only three ways you can refute it, and no more than that. you got to do one of these three things to refute it. Number one, you can show the conclusion does not follow logically from the premises, meaning the argument is invalid. Or two, you can show that one or more of the premises is false, meaning the argument is unsound. Or three, you can show that the terms in the argument are unclear or used in a way that is equivocal. Outside of that, the argument stands. And what people tend to do is attack that argument in ways that are completely beside the point. It does no good to say, you're a man, you have no right to speak, there goes your whole case. Arguments stand or fall apart from the people making them. You can't refute an argument by saying, I don't like the person who made it. By the way, pro-life women use the same arguments as I do. The reality is an argument stands or falls on its own merits, period. In fact, even if the person making the argument is the worst person in the world, if his argument is good, the argument stands. Bad people can make good arguments even if they are bad. And uh, so calling me evil because I allegedly hate women or saying you're just a religious fundamentalist, you can attack me personally, but that doesn't refute my argument. And the beauty of stating our case that clearly is we can keep reminding people You've got to refute the argument that I just made, one of those three ways I just mentioned. It does you no good to call me names like bigot or religious extremist. You can't dismiss my argument by calling it religious. Arguments are sound or unsound, valid or invalid. Calling it religious is a dodge, not a refutation. And you can force people then to stick to the main thing, which is what is the actual argument being advanced here? Well, Scott, you, you obviously, according to your website, you speak, of course, to many Christian groups, as, as you've described in the summer. You're speaking to students largely. Uh, you've spoken to colleges and universities. You've been involved in debates, which I want to ask you about as well. But how does your approach differ depending on whether you're speaking to a Christian or an audience that is more mainstream or public, like a, uh, just like a public university? Well, the main thing is this. In secular settings, the people attending the event do not believe religious truth counts as real knowledge. They think it's subjective opinion. Their definition of faith is very different than yours and mine. 
you and I have a definition of faith that can be defined as trust based on evidence. We see the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we have faith in it because we can trust the evidence. There's good reason to believe Jesus rose from the dead. The secular culture thinks that all religious and ethical claims are simply blind faith. They are things that we feel subjectively, but there's no real evidence for them, and they're not true with a capital T. So I'm going to present a case in a secular environment based on science and philosophy. In fact, I can state that case in a minute or less, and then we can defend it more if you want. Suppose you had an Aunt Betty, Bill, that comes to your house at Thanksgiving. She is not a Christian. She is not pro-life, and she is kind of agitated at you that you're pro-life and a Christian. And between bites of turkey and stuffing, she looks at you and says, now, why are you pro-life? Here's your answer in a minute or less. You could say, Aunt Betty, I'm pro-life because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. And the science of embryology is clear that from the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct living and whole human being. You weren't part of another human being like skin cells on the back of my hand. You were already a whole living member of the human family, even though you had yet to grow and mature. And you know what else, Aunt Betty? There's no essential difference between you, the embryo, and you, the adult, that would justify killing you back then. Differences of size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency are not good reasons for saying we could kill you then, but not now. I think I got that done in about 42 seconds. Mm -hmm. And how many Bible verses did I cite? You, I didn't hear any. But I did communicate <clears throat> biblical truth, and that's our job, to convey biblical truth, even though we use arguments that secular people can't easily dismiss because their definition of faith is distorted. Well, my guest today on His People is uh, Mr. Scott Klusendorf. He's founder and president of Life Training Institute. Scott, what do you say to the person who says, it doesn't seem like abortion is addressed directly in the Bible? My question to them is this, are you saying whatever the Bible doesn't mention, it permits? I mean, the Bible nowhere says thou shalt not use neighbor for shark bait. Does that mean we can do it? Uh, clearly, that's silly. I'll grant the premise that nowhere does the Bible say thou shalt not abort. And I'll also grant the premise that nowhere does the Bible expressly teach the unborn or human. And I'll still show you that the Bible is pro-life. Here's how I'll do it. Premise one. Scripture is clear that all humans have value because they bear the image of God. Genesis 1 teaches that in the Old Covenant, James 3 in the New. So you got both covenants attesting to this. Premise 2, because humans bear the image of God, the shedding of innocent blood is strictly forbidden, meaning the intentional killing of innocent human beings. From conception, the unborn are undeniably human. The science of embryology is crystal clear on this point. Therefore, the same commands against the shedding of innocent blood apply to the unborn as they do each of us. I don't need the Bible to expressly name the unborn before I know I should not treat them horribly. Nowhere in the Bible does it say Americans are human, or that the Canadians are human, or that the French are human. It does not mention every single nationality and people group. It does say all humans bear the image of God and thus have intrinsic value because they are image bearers. If the unborn are human, they too are image bearers, and therefore we should not shed their blood unjustly. That's my pro-life argument from Scripture. Well, Scott, with the abortion laws now being returned to the states, 
and th- there are many uh, that uh, are involved in pro-life ministry, not the exact same kind of ministry that you are involved with, but of course, uh, the pro-life uh, pregnancy centers and those kind of things. Has your mission, your message, your approach changed at all, and, and should it change for the, for the average pro-life person? The message itself has not changed, but what has changed is the urgency. It was a great thing that Roe v. Wade was overturned. Make no mistake about it. Huge win for our side, but it was not the end of the fight. It was the beginning of the fight. And since the Dobbs decision a little over a year ago, the pro-life position has lost every single time it's been put to the voters for a vote. Even in red states like Montana, Kentucky, and Kansas, it lost. In fact, in Montana, we could not even bring red state voters to vote to protect infants who survive abortion procedures. What does that tell us? It tells us we have a worldview problem, Bill, meaning there are millions of our fellow citizens who don't agree with us that A, the unborn are human, or B, that intentionally killing them is wrong objectively. That's our job. We got to persuade them of this. And I think what a lot of pro-lifers assumed for decades is that if we could just get around a hostile media and get around a hostile Supreme Court, we'd be home free. Not even close. The majority of our fellow citizens do not agree with us. So we've got an uphill fight. I think it's winnable, but it's an uphill fight. I'd like to ask you, Scott, about uh, on your website, it says that you've participated in numerous debates at the collegiate level. You've debated some very interesting people, obviously. Can you give an example of one perhaps it was especially noteworthy for you? Um, yeah, I, I have a good friend named Dean Strazen. She is the former president of the ACLU of all organizations, and we disagree on abortion. I like her. She's just wrong. And uh, we've debated abortion in front of, oh, I'd say 11 different university audiences, the most recent one being at, at um, Wayne State in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Your viewer or your listeners can go look at that debate if they want. And what I think is remarkable about our debate, she is a big defender of, of free speech, and I think that's a good thing. And she doesn't have any tolerance for these people that want to censor debates and want to shut down debates and cancel anybody that's not a full-blown lefty. And I appreciate that about her. So we have a rigorous debate around the question of abortion itself. And I think it's good to do these kinds of debates, and I like doing them. And the reason I like debating her is we get to actually have a debate. We actually get to debate the issue without it being a shouting match about who gets to speak and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. We're in a culture right now, Bill, that is largely absorbing what's known as standpoint epistemology. That's a big term. I'll define it for your your listeners. It just means that arguments no longer are evaluated on their merits. They're evaluated from the standpoint of the person who is the alleged victim who has been oppressed, allegedly. And we're told that nobody else gets to speak, only the alleged oppressed person. So if it's a debate over abortion, a man has no right to speak. Only a woman who's been denied access to abortion has a right to speak. This is a very dangerous doctrine because it turns reason and logic on its head and makes everything a matter of subjective opinion from the standpoint of the person who somehow feels oppressed. And having debates challenges that, and I think that's a good thing. Well, in terms of the debate uh, you you said you had with Nadine Strawson, what was her strongest point? I don't think she was persuasive at all, but her main argument was 
that the government should not get involved in the private affairs of family life. Hmm. And of course, my question is, says who? If government should not be operating and imposing any objective moral rules, who are you to impose that view on anybody that disagrees with you? But beyond that, the government gets involved in things all the time. It says you can't abuse your six-year-old in the privacy of the bedroom. If the unborn are human like that six-year-old, they shouldn't be harmed in the name of privacy any more than a toddler would be. So the real issue is not privacy, choice, trusting women. It's what is the unborn. That's the issue that we have to debate. And that's what I force the debate around. And that's the question that you ask, that you can, as I recall, you can grant a lot of the arguments from those that hold the other yes. position if. Yeah. Hey, I'm willing to absolutely say women should not be denied a right to an abortion, that the government should not get involved. I agree completely that women have a right to privacy that includes the right to abortion. I agree that nobody, including myself, should interfere with that choice if, if what, if the unborn are not human. But it's not enough to simply assume the unborn aren't human. You have to argue they're not human. And that's what I forced Nadine to try to do. And that's why I felt the debate went more in my favor than hers. Scott, I'm wondering, too, from the perspective of the gospel and the pro-life position, is it possible to combine this discussion, this uh, conviction, with a presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, 100%, and here's why. When you give people the bad news of abortion and you put sin in concrete terms to where they, they grasp its seriousness, you lead them right to the foot of the cross where they're now ready to hear the good news of, of an escape from the wrath of God, from the judgment of God. So abortion, the bad news about abortion can set the stage for proclaiming to people the good news of a saving gospel. In, in terms of getting your message out, would you say you're speaking as much, more, or, or less? More. more. Oh, way more since Dobbs. It's shot way up. Yeah, staying very busy. In fact, uh, we're probably going to bring on another speaker here soon, just because we've got too much load. Well, you, you talk about, uh, at, at the very beginning, you described yourself as a pro-life apologetics organization. And I'm wondering if you can explain, what, what does that mean? I mean, we think of Christian apologetics, making a defense for the faith, right. but pro-life apologetics. Pro-life apologist is going to do two things, argue for the humanity of the unborn in the, and against the inhumanity of abortion. And we do that a couple of different ways. We do it with pictures to illustrate what abortion is. That changes how people feel about it, which is often a predicate to changing how they think and behave on the issue. And then we do it with hard-hitting arguments based in science and philosophy that even secular people cannot dismiss. I teach a course over at Cross-Examined, Frank Turek's organization, his online Christian courses on the ethics of abortion and how to convince people to be pro-life. And we take a deep dive into the, the biggest thinkers on the other side, the academic heavyweights like Peter Singer, Michael Tooley, and the like. And we examine their arguments. We accurately... Uh, portray those arguments, and then we refute them. And the purpose is to equip Christians to think intelligently, even in the face of withering criticism from academic rivals, and to learn how to engage the best arguments the other side can offer, not the, the cheap little petty ones that most people run to. 
Well, Scott, this obviously this whole realm of uh, the pro-life movement and arguments for life is in the is in the realm of spiritual warfare. Ultimately, it's a it's a spiritual issue. Yes. Right. Can you talk about that? And and how how do you engage it on that level? Well, I think you're absolutely right, Bill. This is very insightful of you to bring that up, because a lot of people, I think, misconstrue what spiritual warfare is. They think it's prayer, worship, casting down, you name a demon and cast it down and, and, and it gets dealt with. I'm not denying that it can't involve prayer, but I think Paul is more clear in 2 Corinthians 10, where he talks about casting down arguments that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. Uh, That is spiritual warfare, when you confront the thought structures of culture that are opposed to biblical truth. And on the abortion issue, that's what a pro-life apologist is doing. He is attacking rival, faulty, wrong views of what it means to be human, what it means to be made in the image of God, what gives us value as human beings, and he is helping the culture align more so with a biblical view of human value which is that we're valuable because we bear God's image, not because of some function we perform, like self-awareness or consciousness. How do you, as a leader, Scott, in the pro-life movement, stay with that consciousness of it being a spiritual battle, stay spiritually vibrant, spiritually fresh, stay encouraged, I guess perhaps is the right word, stay motivated? Well, the first thing I would tell anybody doing apologetics work, whether it's pro-life or Christian apologetics, if you're not grounded in a local church, you are setting yourself up for a lot of problems. And so I get a lot of people who are out there who want to do good work, but they're not grounded in a community of believers. And not only are they functioning unbiblically, they're setting themselves up to be discouraged, defeated, and not able to be this for the long term. So My wife and I have been part of a local fellowship for 18 years. We have friends that encourage us. But secondly, I do a lot of reading. I love to read and and see what's out there and read not only pro-life stuff, but what are the other side critics saying and learn their arguments better than they know their arguments and answer them persuasively. And that keeps me hopeful that our arguments are better. So the importance of uh, of a local body, of having that encouragement, having that teaching, and that worship. And studying and equipping the mind. You know, we're told to love our God with all our heart, soul, and what's that third thing we often overlook? Our mind. And that's part of being a Christian, is to be a thoughtful person who can engage rival thought structures that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. That's part of what it means to be a disciple. And I fear that in today's culture— we have reduced our religious experience primarily to feeling and, you know, kind of setting the mood. Uh, in an age where we go to church and the worship service has strobe lights and smoke machines, I fear we're looking more for a feeling than we are good, solid doctrine and truth. And we need to correct that. We need to be more zeroed in on what is the truth of Scripture, what is the truth of the biblical worldview, and how can we convey that to people who don't accept it? This conversation would be incomplete if I didn't ask you, at least, and I know you speak at these kind of groups to banquets and those kind of things, but speak to the importance of the local uh, Pregnancy Resource Center. There are thousands of them. The Pregnancy Resource Centers, and they're all over Nevada. We got them in Reno, Carson City, in your neck of the woods. 
But these centers are the frontline defense for the lives of the unborn because they say to the women who are seeking abortions, we're here to help you. And there's no more important message a woman needs when she's facing an untimely pregnancy than someone saying, we are here to help you. And that's what these centers do. And they are worthy of our support. And uh, you're right. I spend a lot of my time, especially in the fall and spring, doing banquet speeches, helping these centers raise money. And uh, it's because I believe in the work they do and how vital it is that they are there on the front lines to engage these women with love and truth. Well, Scott, there's so many other avenues I could go, but I, I'm wondering if you could comment on your website and, and what is there. If, if, In other words, if somebody is listening to this and maybe this is sounding kind of new or intriguing, yeah. what, what, what do you have there that can uh, take them well, to the next? Well, the first thing they should do if they go to ProLifeTraining.com, again, ProLifeTraining.com, that's our website, all one word. Uh, they, there's a link at the top called Resources and under that is a link called The Case for Life. They can get written out by me the case for life that we present, including how to answer many of the common objections that are raised against it and how to do it persuasively. They also may want to go to online Christian courses and look at my course there for defending the pro-life view. Very helpful course that we've had lay people take that had no knowledge on abortion and they come out of it feeling like, wow, I suddenly understand this issue. So that's something that's there. A third thing, the second edition of my book, The Case for Life, comes out in November, early November by Crossway. And I would encourage your listeners to go to Amazon and pre-order that and get ready for that release, which is coming out. It is going to be one one great book, I believe, because it's going to update the case for the pro-life view in a post-Roe v. Wade world. Is it possible to summarize how the view has been yeah. updated or changed in post-Roe America? In a post-Roe America, and I've written new chapters to address each of these points, we have to know the worldview, worldviews that are driving the abortion debate. So there's a whole chapter there showing how philosophical naturalism is driving the abortion debate, how postmodernism is driving the, the abortion debate, uh, how wokeism is driving the abortion debate, how the whole critical theory movement is undermining biblical truth on the issue of life. And then there's a whole section on who are the big thinkers and why do we need to know them and how can we get a, at least a working knowledge without taking so deep a dive that we get caught in the weeds, how can we understand their major themes and how might we respond to those themes once we recognize the general patterns in their thinking? And then there's a whole section that I'm really excited about it on what does a pro-life church look like? What are the seven marks of a pro-life church? And then for everyone, there's a section on how you can be an effective pro-life communicator in your community to where you could reach several hundred people just by doing a few little steps to reach students and others in your community. And before you know it, you've reached 800 people in your community, especially students who are at risk for abortion. All of us need to be really willing to speak, uh, Bill. You know, people say, I'm afraid of speaking. That's not an excuse. Here's my response. Tell me if any of your fears about speaking are worth the price of children's lives that might have been saved had you been more courageous. I mean, we all have to face our fears on many things, and fear is not an excuse. As the old saying goes, we need to learn to feel the fear and do it anyway. And speaking out on abortion is one of those things. 
Uh, Scott, just uh, as we as we wrap up, you you mentioned marks of a pro life church. Let me give you the top four. Number one, a pro-life church preaches, teaches, and counsels that human beings are made in the image of God and thus have intrinsic value, meaning their value is not functional. Their value is not based on how self-aware they are. It's based on the fact they are image bearers. Second mark of a pro-life church, you preach, teach, and counsel that abortion is a sin. It's not a choice, a subjective choice like choosing chocolate over vanilla, it is an objective evil and you teach that. The third mark of a pro-life church is you minister to men and women wounded by abortion and you do that by preaching a cross-centered gospel that gives people the truth about their sin but also the hope of the redemption found in Christ. And then fourthly, a pro-life church is going to equip and teach its people to engage. It's not enough to simply preach that abortion is wrong, We've got to give our people the tools of thought so they can defend their pro-life view in a minute or less, like we did a moment ago. These are the top four things they got to do. There's a few other things, but I'll I'll leave that for the book. Well, the book is The Case for Life, being released, yep. updated this fall in November, yep. equipping Christians to engage the culture. Um, my guest has been Scott Klusendorf, founder and president of Life Training Institute. Scott, last words of, in, of encouragement. Well, the first thing I would say to you, your job description of being a pro-life defender will never be as daunting as what the prophet Jeremiah had. Now, remember Jeremiah, God told him to testify against child sacrifice while he's in a pit in the middle of the city. And God then tells him this, nobody is going to listen to you. In other words, you're going to persuade no one, but you're to do it anyway. Uh, Hmm. As a testimony to the truth, Hmm. none of us face those daunting odds. And so we need to be brave and realize that every time we open our mouth, we don't have to convert people on the spot. We need to do what my friend Greg Kokel says, put a pebble in their shoe. I don't know if you ever had a pebble in your shoe when you're out hiking. It wears on you and wears on you until you stop to deal with it. Same idea here. We give people something to think about. We place those nuggets of thought in their minds. And who knows, maybe a year later, they're talking to somebody else and it it comes about that God at that point brings the harvest. We need to get past this idea that if people don't agree on the spot with us, we've lost. No, your job is to faithfully convey truth and leave the results to God. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Scott Klusendorf, founder of Life Training Institute. Go to ProLifeTraining.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join us again on Monday at this same time for another edition of His People.